Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. Good morning. Good morning. For the past, like, forever, we have been in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to this morning, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 11 through 16. We're going to be looking at the story of the widow of Nain. Now, it's interesting that the title of that piece of Scripture is the widow of Nain, but the main character is Jesus. (laughs) You ever notice that? Sometimes when you read throughout the Gospel stories, you have these topics that this sort of uh, 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 give a prelude as to what's about to happen, but but the real the, the real crux of the passage is Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's only Jesus. So this morning, if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles there, Luke seven verses eleven uh, through sixteen. Now, when I was a kid growing up, I loved wrestling. I didn't say wrestling. I loved wrestling. Okay, I, I'm talking about the guys that were masks like the luchadors, you know, who would fly all over the place. I thought those guys were amazing. And I'm talking about, uh, I used to root for, for several characters, okay? I used to root for guys like Hulk Hogan. Remember Hulk would walk out into the ring and he would tear, oddly enough, he was this huge guy, but his shirt was already ripped and then he would rip it off. Remember that part? As if that took a lot of strength to do. Hey, baby. Good morning. <laughs> That's my wife. That's not just some girl. (laughs) It's not just some girl walking across. That would be inappropriate, okay? But I I love guys like Hulk Hogan. Uh, There was another guy that I was really into as, as a little kid. His name was the Ultimate Warrior. Remember the Ultimate Warrior, Josh? He was awesome. And then there were guys like Sting, okay, and then there was Roddy Roddy Piper. I remember Roddy Roddy Piper. They had cartoons on, Sunday, on Saturday mornings uh, that were dedicated to wrestling. Now, some of you are looking at me right now with judgment eyes. Don't blame me. Blame my parents for letting me watch it, okay? I can't help it. I was a kid of the 80s. This is what kids of the 80s had. We didn't have very much, okay? But we had wrestling. Now, I can remember growing up watching these wrestling matches. And they would do these things called tag team matches. Remember the tag team matches? You would only have one guy in the ring at a time, but then outside of the ring, you would have a guy that you could tag in. So there would be a time where you would have a a guy, he'd be on the mat, maybe halfway through the match, and he'd be on the mat. You'd have another big guy on top of him. He'd have his arm pulled back in an arm bar, maybe his leg pulled up in a weird spot, and he's just screaming and yelling, okay? And all of a sudden, the referee gets on the mat, and he goes, one, two, three, and it probably looks something like that, okay? One, two, three. And then the guy would reach out, and with his last breath, he would tag his partner who was outside of the ring to come into the ring. Just when you thought all was lost, just when you thought the guy was going to lose, all of a sudden he'd tag his partner, all of a sudden he would be relieved, he could get up and walk off, and now his fully energized partner would run into the ring and just start doing great things because he was rested, he was ready. And this would go back and forth until finally there would be a win. Now, in my life, I'll be honest, there are times where I wish I had a tag team partner. 
especially when I was a kid. I would, I would wish I had a tag team partner when I had a difficult test. Boy, I don't know the answer to that test. Tag. Wouldn't it be great if somebody you could tag would come into the ring and take the test for you? What about this? Boy, I'd love to ask out that girl, but I'm chicken. Tag. <laughs> tag somebody else in. What about this one? Man, that kid sure is a bully. Tag. Somebody come in and take your place. You'd think that as an adult, the desire to have a tag team partner, I mean, that's kind of childhood fantasy. You'd think that that would fade a little bit as you, as you get to adult. But as, as I have progressed through these adulthood years, I have actually wished more for a tag team partner. I've had thoughts like this, man, I don't really want to deal with that confrontation. Tag. I really don't want to go through that conflict. Tag. Man, I, I wish I had the answer to that really significant problem that you're dealing with, church member but I don't, tag. Boy, I, I wish I could make a better decision as a parent and maybe help my kids better than maybe what I'm helping them right now, tag. And chances are you've probably been there as well. Uh, some of us have had much more significant things that we would like to have tagged out of. Maybe you'd like to have tagged out of sickness, maybe the death of a family, maybe a family member, maybe the loss of a job you'd like to tag out of. Maybe a a mistake that's led to some severe consequences, tag. I don't want to take that punishment. You maybe want to tag on all of them. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning I have good news for you. I, maybe you feel like you're the wrestler on the mat that we just showed. And maybe you feel like all is lost. You're, you've got your last dying breath right there with you and you're reaching out. You're wanting help. You wish there was somebody in your corner. Well, friends, let me tell you, there is someone in your corner. His name is Jesus. And he's ready to tag in. He's ready when you've given up all hope, when all seems lost, when there never seems to be any more light in your life. If you reach out and tag him, I'll make a promise to you. He will come to you. He never has failed. The sad thing is in life is that we feel like we have to fight. <laughs> and the reality is, is that Jesus has already won the fight. We don't even have to fight. We don't even have to tag him in. He'll come in in our place right now if we'll let him. And sadly, too many of us choose to fight on our own. Well, fill out this blank for me, if you will. The very top blank, sort of our thesis statement this morning. Are you tapping out or are you in touch with Jesus? Are you tapping out or are you in touch with Jesus? Do you feel like you're just too tired? Too many problems going on right now in your life. Maybe you feel like you're overworked. Maybe you feel like you're too stressed. Maybe you feel like you don't get enough credit. I don't know what it is. But maybe this morning you're feeling just sort of overwhelmed or whelmed over, and you're just wanting to tag out. So to give you a little bit of background of Luke chapter 7, we were in Capernaum last week. If you remember, Capernaum was the launching pad for Jesus' ministry. Capernaum uh, was in northern Israel. It was laid right there on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus begins to attract lots of followers, and mainly because of his teachings. If you remember, Jesus was a phenomenal teacher and taught very different lessons than what the current rabbinical teachers were teaching at the time. He would look into the Torah and bring out insights and applications that nobody had ever really discovered before. And so people would begin to follow Jesus because of his unique communication ability, but because of his unique teachings. But also this, that Jesus was also very adept at miracles. 
Jesus had begun to do some pretty radical, unusual uh, miracles that no one had ever seen before. Uh, If you want to, you can flip in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah talks to us directly about Jesus' ministry in Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Listen to Isaiah's words. He says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Luke, by the way, if you read the entire gospel of Luke, Luke really focuses on this aspect of Jesus' ministry, these miracles. Because what he wants to do is he wants to connect Jesus' ministry and miracles to Old Testament prophecy that would support Jesus' claim for being the Messiah. In Luke chapter 7, we've got the same story. If you remember, last week we talked about the, the soldier who had a slave that was sick and Jesus healed that servant. Now Jesus is going to be coming in to Nain, which is a city about 20 miles outside of Capernaum. It's uh, about a day's walk, if you will, or if you're me, about a three-day walk, okay? But about a day's walk in ancient times, and Jesus is going to run into another opportunity to perform an astounding miracle. And so that's where we are today. So if you will, you can read along with me. I have it on the screens here, or you have your Bibles. In Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, it says this, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, the he being Jesus, and his disciples with a great crowd went with him. So Jesus is flocked by all these people. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd uh, with them from the town was with her. So we have a very sad story here in verse 12, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And all, the barrier, and all the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Don't you wonder what he said? And began to speak, and Jesus gave him over to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people So three lessons this morning that I want to share with you very briefly from the widow of Nain or from Jesus himself is this. See the widow's condition. See the widow's condition in verses 11 and 12. Let's just talk very briefly about what this woman was going through. First, she was a widow. Now, this woman was familiar with pain. She was familiar with the circumstance of death. This was not by, by, by any stretch the very first funeral procession that she has ever been in. She was a widow, meaning that her husband had died, meaning that there was no one there to take care of her outside of her son. The plight of widows back in these days was rather difficult. There were no social programs to take care of widows. Uh, There was no program to provide them housing. There was no program to provide them retirement. There was no program really even to provide them food. Just the other day on Friday, I was out visiting with people and came across a, a, a very sweet lady in our church who also is a widow. And she had just finished having lunch. And when I opened the door, she looked very full and very satisfied. And she told me she'd had lunch. And I said, really? 
what did you fix? She said, oh, honey, I didn't fix anything. This food was delivered to me. She was a part of a program. I thought, wow, that's great. Well, that's unlike this woman. There was no program delivering to the widow of Nain any fresh banana pudding, I promise you. As a matter of fact, the only program allotted in the Scripture comes from Deuteronomy for widows. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, I believe we'll have this up on the screen. Listen to what is provided in Old Testament times for widows that are on hard, having a hard time. Look at verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. So what is being told here by Moses is that he's talking to farmers, and he's saying, listen, when you go out and you cut your wheat, whatever wheat falls on the ground, don't go back and get it. Leave that wheat there. Listen to what he says. It shall be for the sojourner, the traveler, the fatherless, the orphan, or the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go back over them again. It shall be for the travelers, the orphans, the widows. When you gather grapes in your vineyards, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the traveler, the orphan, or the widow. Again, if you go to the book of Ruth, which is one of my very favorite books in the Old Testament, you see the story of Ruth and Naomi. If you remember, Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. Do you remember when Ruth and Naomi decided to travel together after a, a, a significant death in the family and they come across Boaz? Do you remember that Naomi was uh, Naomi and Ruth both were supposed to go out in the fields and they were supposed to be gleaning? And yet Ruth said, no, 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 Naomi, I want you to stay here. I will go and glean for both of us. I will take care of that job. If it weren't for Ruth, Naomi would be out in the field. And so that was the plight of a widow during the ancient times. They were completely dependent upon the generosity of people allowing their grapes not to be stripped from the vines or allowing the olive trees to hopefully still have some olives that they may be able to pick after they have already been picked over. You can imagine what olives would be left over. Or maybe the, the wheat that would be left on the ground. This is not exactly a great program. This widow was in a hard place. Now, the second reason for her condition is she has also lost her son. Back in these days, if a woman lost her husband, then it was incumbent upon the son to take care of the mother. And so sadly, this woman's son has passed away. For the mother, there's, by the way, nothing more devastating than a loss of a child of all the deaths, by the way, that I have experienced as a pastor, always the saddest, always the hardest, is those of a child being buried before the parent. And you've probably been to funerals like that. And it's very difficult. So you can imagine, if you will, the extreme grief, the extreme sense of loss that this woman is experiencing as a widow. How can she pay her bills? If she doesn't have a husband, if she doesn't have a son, where will she live? Could she be tossed out into the streets? All of these things are questions that are probably running through her mind. Now, the scripture also tells us that with this woman, who is a widow, who has lost her son, is a crowd of people. I believe Luke puts that in there for a very specific reason. Back in these days, the religion of Judaism was a very judgmental, a very judgmental religion. It was a religion that cast a great deal of suspicion on those who were having a hard time. Most of us today, we deal with the prosperity gospel. You're familiar with that, right? Where a preacher will say, well, if you do good things and if you give enough money, 
and you go where what you believe you're doing what God wants you to do, then God is going to bless you with material things. Now, we know that's not true. That's not biblical. It's not anywhere in Scripture. But yet, if, if that's the, a gospel of today, then the current form of Judaism in the ancient world would be the flip side of that. So they would say, well, if you are experiencing hardship, then you've done something bad. Then you've sinned then you've done something to make God angry at you. Therefore, God is dispensing judgment and punishment on you. I imagine that this woman, as she's carrying her son out in the second funeral procession of her life, most likely, that the crowd that's around her is probably scratching their head, probably murmuring behind the scenes saying, boy, I wonder what she did. I wonder what she did to deserve this. And you're probably thinking, well, where are you pulling that from, Stuart? I'll pull it from Scripture. Again, go to John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and you see that Jesus is confronted with a blind man, and Jesus is asked a very specific, uh, specific and a very direct question from the people that are around him. It says this, and he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his own disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned that, uh, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? Again, they were trying to attach this hardship to some sort of sinful activity that God would then judge that person upon. So here you've got this poor widow who's suffering in a belief system that if bad things happen to you, then you must have sinned some hideous sin. It viewed God as one who had sent bad things on those who disobeyed. Therefore, uh, that they would have all these difficulties and they would live under this, this umbrella of suspicion for the rest of their lives. And I will tell you this, this woman's this widow's life appeared to be filled with fear and despair. Her future appeared to be filled with more pain and loneliness than she ever would have signed up for. Going back to my earlier illustration, don't you think this woman was somehow looking for a tag team partner? Get me out of this situation. I am at my lowest point. No one can help me. Please do something. And so we come to Roman numeral two. We see her condition. Then we see a confrontation take place in verses 11 and 13. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Jesus had a crowd. There was a crowd there. There are two crowds in this story. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died being carried out, but the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and another crowd, a considerable crowd from that town was with her. And the Lord saw her and he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. So the widow had lost her son. He's being taken outside to be buried. No doubt, I would say probably in a very similar tomb to that which we've seen earlier with Lazarus. It must have been a a sad procession leaving the town. No doubt there was a great deal of weeping, gnashing of teeth, a lot of tears being shed. And again, Nain was probably about 20 to 25 miles away from Capernaum. So Jesus would have arrived later on in the afternoon of that day. It would have been late in the day when that took place. So imagine, if you will, Jesus pulls up to the city gate in the afternoon on the same day that the boy died, and by the way, the Jews buried people on the same day that they died. So if you were an ancient Jew, you better make sure you were really, really dead. Okay? 
Just if you ever time travel or whatever, make sure. So this boy dies on the same day they take him out to be buried, and then they meet Jesus' crowd on the same day. They meet the crowd following Jesus, and then there's this crowd of a funeral procession heading for the cemetery. And I, I read a, a commentary, and, and someone described this as a, a, procession, a death procession meeting a life perception, despair meeting hope, all kind of slamming in to one. If we read in the previous verses, you, we see that Jesus' compadres or compatriots, they were celebrating that Jesus had raised this servant up from the dead who belonged to the soldier. And so no doubt as they're walking in, they're feeling like rock stars, especially the disciples. Man, look at what our teacher did. Look at what he can accomplish. And then all of a sudden they come and they meet this sad procession. How many of y'all have ever seen a funeral procession these days? You ever seen them driving down the road? Lights on, right? And you ever see one where they're coming down the road and the lights are on and you pull, you pull over, right? That's what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to do that. We don't do that as much these days. You, just letting my church people know, if you see a procession, pull over and stop, okay? That's what you're supposed to do. Okay, that's how we recognize the importance of a life that has passed. That's what we do. Now, in Jesus' day, it was very different. You didn't pull over to the side of the road and let the procession pass. No, you would actually stop wherever you were going and join in that procession. So if there was a, a procession headed out of town to bury someone, if you had a group of people and you passed by, I'm sorry, it is customary for you to stop what you're doing and go join and grieve with these people that you don't even know. That's what Jesus did. Jesus joined in this sad expression of life that so many of us have been, that we've been there before. I would say this, that this is the key. Whatever situation Jesus encounters, whatever the situation is that Jesus encounters, that situation is going to be vastly different after he encounters it. Always. So no matter where you are personally, no matter where you are professionally, no matter where you are in life, when you encounter Jesus, your life is going to be different. And that's what happens here with this woman. We don't know, by the way, we're not told in Scripture that this woman knew anything about Jesus. She may not have known Jesus before he raised her son to life. I doubt that she was thinking about Jesus uh, as she was walking out the, the, the city gate. She didn't know Jesus was coming, but Jesus knew that she needed him. I know that Faith is always really important, and I know that asking is important. We talked about that last week. Remember, the, the soldier asked specifically for Jesus to do something, and Jesus did that. But I think it's also important to note that there is no record of this woman ever approaching Jesus to ask him to raise her son. Indeed, there was no record of this woman having any faith in Jesus at all before Jesus did what he did. Luke 7, to me, is a, it's an interesting study in contrasting stories. There are two stories, one of a Roman centurion who had great faith, faith so great that Jesus marveled at it, and another story of a woman who appears to have no faith, at least none that is mentioned, and just gloom and doom, and Jesus moves equally and powerfully between these two extremes 
of people having unbelievable faith and people having zero faith, and Jesus does miracles in both of their lives. That's an awesome thing. Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite writers, said this specifically about this story. He said, these differences illustrate that Jesus, our Savior, doesn't demand that we fit into a set pattern to receive his help. He doesn't restrain his compassion because we fail to meet our good deed quota or because we don't say the right words or because we forget to follow the correct ritual I don't know how you feel about this boy, but to me, this gives me so much hope. We would like to think that we should have great faith, but I'll be honest with you, great faith can be a rarity. This is why Jesus marveled at it when the centurion had it. This is why Jesus asked in one place that the Son of Man be returned and that we would find faith on earth when he comes back. When you're walking in the valley of despair, you wonder if Jesus really cares for you. I've been there before. You wonder if you have any hope and, and faith seems to be far away. Does anyone care? Friend, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Trust me, Jesus cares about you. He cares about you. He loves you. He cares for you. Whether or not you believe in him or not, he still cares for you. Whether you have great faith worth marveling at or whether you have faith that honestly is broken and bruised and beat up and you're questioning and you're doubting and you have no idea, Jesus loves you. Loves you. In Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, it says, Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Cast your burdens on the Lord. So lesson three, we see her condition, we see the confrontation between these two polar opposite crowds, and then we have lesson three, we see the compassion, the compassion of Christ in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And Jesus saw this woman. He had compassion on her. The woman was already a widow. She had lost her son. She was very concerned about the support that she was going to receive after that. And she was now at a great social risk of embarrassment because people were probably judging her and condemning her. By the way, if you want to, you can underline the word compassion. The, that Greek word for compassion is only used in that current form twice in the entirety of the New Testament, okay? That Greek word is only used two times. It's used in this story, and it's also used in the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that? The Samaritan, he has compassion on the man who is beaten. Jesus has compassion on the woman whose son is dead. Now, this particular word, this particular Greek word that means compassion, it actually means this. It's compassion attached to action. Compassion attached to action. So it means that we don't just, that, that Jesus didn't see a need and say, aw, that's sad. It, it wasn't that Jesus walked by and said, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to pray for you. That's a good thing to do. No, what Jesus said, what happens is Jesus sees compassion, sees this woman who's suffering, sad, 
in despair. He has compassion on her. He recognizes the need. And then Jesus does something unusual. He reaches out and does something about that need. So he sees the need and he says, well, I'm going to do something about it. Now, in the Old Testament, especially in the ancient time that Jesus lived in, it would be considered very uncouth for you to touch a dead body. Notice that this man is being carried on two biers. It was the same sort of setup that they would have carried the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they would have had two long pieces of wood, maybe a piece of fabric draped beneath, and then they would have laid the body of the boy on the mat. And then four men would have stepped up, picked up the, the, uh, the beers, and put them on their shoulder and walked him out the city gates. Notice no one touches the body of the boy because if you touch the dead body, it meant that you were ceremonially unclean. It meant that you could not worship. You could not go to the synagogue. You could not be taught. And you could not teach unless you had been cleansed again. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus play by the rules? Does Jesus say, well, I need, to, I need to, to take a consideration here of the Pentateuch before I jump in this situation? No, Jesus walks up and he says, I see that you're hurting. I'm willing to do something about it. I'm willing to make myself ritually, ceremonially unclean so that your son can live again. I am going to touch him. That's what scripture says. At great sacrifice, Jesus touches that boy. Can you imagine the scene? When Jesus reaches out and touches that knee, people would have been like, what in the world? Can you, what did he just do? Can you believe that? The only thing that would have made up for the temporary embarrassment is that the fact that when Jesus actually touched this kid, he raised up and started shouting and talking. Oh, it's worth it. People started fear, you know, having fear. They clapped, they sang, they danced, they began to celebrate. Friends, let me tell you. The compassion that Jesus wants us to have, I believe this as, as, for Stuart as well as our entire church, I believe the compassion that, that we should have is that we ought to have compassion attached to action. Compassion attached to action makes a huge difference in people's lives. It introduces them to a Jesus that we've all encountered before and that maybe other people have never encountered before. Compassion attached to action he spoke to the young man and said to him, Arise, and the man got up. The last point that I wrote here that I'll share before I share this closing illustration is this, that Jesus demonstrated a divine compassion. He was concerned about the plight of an obscure widow who at that point had no, given no signs that she even had faith in Jesus. And if he's concerned about an obscure widow don't you believe that he's concerned about your plight as well? This woman was down for the count. The referee was, had counted all the way up to number nine. She was reaching out supernaturally. She was reaching out. Somebody help me. And Jesus reached out his hand and, he, and she tagged him in. And I promise you, if he'll do that for her, he'll do that for you. I've told many stories over the years about Abraham Lincoln Abraham Lincoln's like my favorite president ever. I've read books about him. I've watched movies about him. I've watched documentaries about him. I'm always fascinated with Abraham Lincoln just because he was an unbelievable man. I came across an unusual story I had never read before about Abraham Lincoln as I was studying for this sermon. And the story goes like this, that before Abraham Lincoln was president, 
that he was walking through the streets of his hometown. And as he was walking through the streets of his hometown, he came across an area where slaves were often purchased, bought, and traded. And so Abraham Lincoln was not a man who supported slavery. We, we all know this. But the story goes is that Abraham Lincoln, as he approached this slave auction block, he knows that there was a small, young black girl who was about to be sold for the third time to a different owner. Abraham Lincoln was moved. And so he checked his wallet. He looked to see how much money he had. And he joined in on this auction. We can all agree what a horrific thing slavery must have been back in those days, back in any day. Well, as it turns out, Abraham Lincoln is the winning bid for this human soul. He purchases her. So as they walk away from this auction block and as they get away from the crowd, the story goes that Abraham Lincoln knelt down and he looked at this young black girl in her face and she said, and he said, sweetheart, you're free. You're free. And he promised that he would help her. And so this young girl didn't believe the story. And so she looked at Abraham Lincoln and she says, does that mean that I can be whatever I want to be? And Abraham Lincoln said, yes, it means you can be whatever you want to be. You are free. And she asked a follow-up question, does that mean that I can say whatever I want to say? And Abraham Lincoln says, yes, that means you can say whatever you want to say. And the last question she asked, she says, does that mean that I can go wherever I want to go? And Abraham Lincoln said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. You are free. The little girl with a tear in her eye looked up at Abraham Lincoln and she says, then I want to go with you. And the story goes on that she lived in Abraham's Lincoln house, not as a slave, as a freed woman, but wanting to serve him because he cared about her and because he bought her freedom. Friends, I don't know about you, that story just sounds a lot like Jesus to me. That Jesus took me in my sin purchased me with his blood, set me free. Now I can go live my life however I want to go live it. I can live it the way Stuart wants to live it or I can live it the way Jesus wants me to live it. But the reality is, is that I want to go with Jesus because Jesus cares for me and he cares for you. Do you need a tag team partner today? Are you on the mat? Do you feel like giving up? Do you feel like life's become too hard and too heavy? Well, friend, reach out your hand to Jesus and ask him to come in to your life and to your world.